You're very welcome to the Farm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. In this episode, myself and Jasper Miners from Value18.com explore a whistle-stop tour of the beginnings of the Strategic School of Golf architecture. Along the way, we will look at a small group of friends and acquaintances that influenced and drove a movement which ultimately saw a game spread around the world. Jasper also shares some stories from the field as he provides historical consultancy services to clubs that have a requirement of that nature. Finally, we lose ourselves in planning the most epic golf trip you could ever hope to enjoy through France, England and Scotland and a bucket list to die for on the Emerald Isle. It was great to catch up with Jasper and tap into his inquisitive mind. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi Jasper, I hope spring is springing wherever you are in the greater London area. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, a bit horrid yesterday. It was chucking it down with rain non-stop morning till evening. And today, uh, mid-teens, bright, sunny. Uh, yeah, I think this is, is spring, it's sprung, and hopefully it's here to stay. Brilliant. Uh, well, look, you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf podcast. I'm very grateful for your time. And looking forward to a an interesting wander through uh, a bit of history, a bit of golf course architecture, and whatever else takes our fancy. Just wondering, have you played any golf of note recently, Mr. Miners? So uh, recently, I've been to Henkley Common, which was quite nice. Uh, so that obviously is a bit of James Braid and, and Harry Colt, three, three uh, Colt holes called Colt's Corner. Uh, been to Stoneham. So the recent work that they've done that uh, that way, uh, which is um, essentially a Willie Park Junior routing, and following that down to Broadstone, which I was very happy to say was uh, was well worth going to. It's worth the trek down to Poole. Uh, so the South Coast uh, that was uh, a bit of a revelation. How good the golf was there. Uh, some of the golf very reminiscent of St George's Hill. Um, the first couple of holes and then the last holes are, are the difference between making it between between good and great, I guess you could say. But I think they've got that in hand, so we'll just have to see how that goes. That's a downland course, if I'm correct. Yeah, so Heathland at um, yeah downland Heathland. So uh, Broadstone, it's uh, def- definitely got um, a bit of both. Really, it kind of meanders. You start out on the on the flatlands. Um, and then work your way up after three and four, kind of into Heathland country. Uh, nine, you come out on a plateau, probably similar to the uh, the Downland feel, and then back into more Heathland feel. Uh, and then 16, you kind of come out by the, the clubhouse, and you're back to a little bit of parkland. So it's a, it's a meandering routing with, uh, with a variety of, like you say, Downland, uh, Forest, Heathland. But uh, the work there is is, is great and and looks like it's only going to get better so those were the the recent three courses i've been to oh, look we'll, we'll get to your bucket list courses in time maybe as a jumping off point for the pod and to provide our listeners an introduction to those that don't know who you are perhaps you might give us an introduction to jasper miners your wanderings in the world of golf and how you got to where you are with the evaluating project sure so uh born and bred in canada a place called saskatchewan which is uh, basically flat country. Uh, there's you're either a farmer or a rancher. Uh, probably in the last two or three decades, you you may have started to work in the oil and gas, uh, but that was 
basically everybody's bread and butter growing up. Uh, the golf isn't terrible. I would say the, the understanding of golf course architecture is uh, probably foreign to most there. Um, certainly was to me, to the, to the point that as a, an uh, aspiring young amateur golfer, uh, my family made it possible for me to go play what was considered to be the best golf courses in Western Canada. And I ended up working for essentially picking range balls on some of the big resorts in Western Canada so that I could have access to play and hone my game. And that's kind of where, where my life took uh, a bit of a detour. I was playing the best golf courses. Well, what I was told were the best golf courses. And I got so bored with flat fairways, white sand bunkers, and tilted greens facing the, the player that I ended up basically walking away from the game of golf. Um, fast forward probably about 10 years, found myself in London. Um, a mate of mine from Canada came to visit and he thought we should go to the driving range for old time's sake. I did. At that time, I hadn't played or even touched a club for years and uh, effectively walked away with a, a set of Mizuno irons. Uh, I was bit by the bug again at the, the driving range. Uh, not long after that, my wife, uh, she hired a cottage in, in Wales near the Mumbles. And I, I googled golf courses near the Mumbles and came up with Pennard. So I took my, my new set of clubs, played Pinard once, and I realized that, that this was the type of golf that I've been looking for. And from there, it's just been <laughs> literally one roller coaster. Well, a hell of a, a roller coaster ride. Um, Pinard was followed by St. Anadoc and then Perrinporth. And after that, there's no stopping it. I was absolutely enthralled with what I was uh, finding and, and playing. And I thought, if this is what golf could be, then I wanted to get, I wanted to get back to it. It's funny how serendipity tends to intervene occasionally and were it not for that mate that came across from Canada, we might not be talking today. No, I don't think we would. Um, it was interesting. There was that. And then after I played those three courses, I just did an internet search and I came up um, with uh, Sean Arbel and his uh, reviews of those same courses on uh, Golf Club Atlas. And reference was made to a gentleman by the name of Tom Doak, who wrote a book, The Never Heard of him. Guide. No, Never heard of him. no, no. no. <laughs> he hides under a rock, this Tom Doak yeah. that you speak of. So basically, that was my first book that I bought was Tom Doak's Confidential Guide after reading Sean Arbel's tours uh, on Golf Club Atlas. And that that was the slippery slope, really. After that, um, anything that was basically a Doak 4 and above uh, was on my list to play and I, I guess most people have the you know the bucket list but basically my list starts with talk down for uh, tom dope fours and above uh wherever i might be and, and that was the genesis really that they started evaluate teen and and this this crazy adventure that has become it how many courses do you think you've played thus far in the uk and ireland um well i wish i played more in ireland uh, i've been over a couple of times and haven't played as much as i like you're always welcome, obviously. Don't be a stranger, okay? Well, I'm, I'm hoping. I'm hoping June we're heading back over, so we'll uh, we'll hopefully be able to get the map out and uh, and circle a few. I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, but I reckon in and around the UK, um, upwards of 200. Um, again, and that's from the good to the great, and, and some in between. Um, like you say, the 
probably one of my favorite courses is Minchin Hampton Old. It's I think ten, less than ten pounds to play. I bang on, I bang on about it quite a bit. Um, but I'm quite interested in common land golf um, and a bit of the the rugged small sub six thousand yard nine hole, twelve hole, you know, whatever it might be. Just something that's weird and wonderful, a bit quirky. Uh, those are the types of courses that I like to find as well. So, yeah, they're, they're not just the you know I'm not a logo a logo man where you know I've got logos off all over my bag and head covers and shirt and trousers and shoes and ball markers. Um, I think good golf can be found just about anywhere. Um, but it's the the architecture behind it, the design, uh, the strategy, that's what makes golf good. And, and there's and the land, obviously, as well. Absolutely, yeah. Well, yeah. The in line with the uh, the title of your podcast, firm and fast. It's amazing what uh, what what good land uh, can do. They're just the right conditions for golf to flourish. Um, that makes a massive difference. But it, the good thing is, it's it's found in spades. No matter where you go, um, you just have to know where to look. Indeed. Well, look, let, let's maybe jump off with maybe a, a look at the strategic school of, of golf. Towards the end of the 19th century, the popularity of the game of golf extended well beyond the Scottish borders. With the dearth of Linksland within reach of cities such as Sheffield, Birmingham and London, golfing establishments started to explore inland sites. Much of what passed for, for Victorian golf architecture at the time was based on equity and fairness. In other words, doling out punishment equal to the extent of the sin involved in the particular shot. Alpinization and penal cross hazards were often in evidence, likely an attempt to recreate the natural ground hazards in existence on the first links courses. Some listeners may not be aware of the names of John Lowe and Stuart Patton and what they did at Woking's Fort and indeed other holes on the golf course. It's interesting that neither of these gentlemen were actually designers per se, However, the revisions over a number of years at Woking sent reverberations around the golfing world. You might expand on how important Lowe and Patton's endeavours at Woking were to the future direction of the game of golf on inland sites. Yeah, so th- this was an interesting... I mean, Woking is, uh, is one of those places that it, it just... It, it feels like golf. As soon as you arrive, you know you're somewhere special. Um, found some information that would lead one to believe that uh, Lowe and Patton were were taken by uh, Cuthbert Bouchard screens uh, just down the road at West Hill. Um, and I also did some work at Bleakdown or, or West Byfleet, as it's known now. Uh, w- whatever might have been, the, the, the greens uh, that they gently massaged and helped evolve over decades um, and, and essentially placing hazards on that that fourth hole uh, kind of started a revolution um john Lowe, i think it was 1903 wrote concerning golf uh it was a bit of a revolutionary uh book at the time because it essentially put pen to paper on a change a, a paradigm shift uh from as you mentioned penal golf architecture to strategic and it, it wasn't necessarily that the execution uh of those hazards necessarily changed in form or structure um, but placement was the the ideal so uh, on a straight hole uh, classic Victorian penal golf course architecture you'd have bunkers lining left and right side of the fairway and you probably have a, a cross hazard that was perpendicular to the line of play so the the idea of essentially punishing bad shots so confining one to hitting straight shots um, and then almost like a steeplechase. 
having to overcome these obstacles uh, between point A and point B, that was the essence of golf. Uh, but the idea of uh, placing hazards introduced the idea of risk and reward. Um, but it, it also uh, brought into to play um, essentially formations. Uh, so, for example, a cross hazard uh, in form and function perpendicular line of play is very penal, very Victorian in nature. Um, but an echelon bunker. Uh, something diagonally set against the line of play or at 45 degrees to it. Well, it, essentially in form and function, um, in form it could be identical, but in function it could be very different. So uh, the the idea of placing hazards in, in these ways is what really started the ball rolling. And obviously it was Tom Simpson that, that kind of came out of that woking school. Um, but if we're honest, uh, a lot of those uh, early golf course architects, uh, Colt, Fowler, Simpson, um, and even Willie Park Jr. Uh, were individuals that, that benefited from what had been done previously, whether that was Tom Dunn or, or, um, or, or old Tom Morris. Uh, they essentially stood on the shoulders of giants and, and were able to uh, make the greens and, and put in hazards that made the best use of these amazing routings that many of them made. Low, low on patent arguably ungreased the pole for the likes of Colt, Mackenzie, Allison, Morrison, Fowler, Abercrombie, Simpson et al. Furthering the growth of the game, both in the UK and Ireland and Europe and further afield. As you said, following on from the initial standard bears and giants that were Alan Robertson, Old Tom, George Morris's brother, J.H. Taylor, Johnny Ball, obviously the, the great champion, James Braid, etc. As a Canadian, you might tell us how some of these men and their philosophies influenced the likes of Stanley Thompson, C.B. McDonald, Donald Ross, and even, pray tell, Robert Trent Jones. Yeah, I must say that my, my understanding uh, and my knowledge of, of Canadian golf course architecture is not as, uh, not as deep as it would be in the UK, unfortunately. Maybe that's when I eventually go back home. Uh, um, but of interest, both Stanley Thompson, C.B. McDonald, Canadian by birth, um, but, but they obviously understood well um the the precepts of of strategic golf um part of uh mcdonald's uh, understanding of golf course architecture came from studying the great golf courses of of uh, the uk um and and basically applying what he learned in practice on the ground uh, for him in america so you know you look at stanley thompson as well uh been able to play BAP Springs quite a few times uh, as a as a junior golfer as an amateur, and even though I didn't understand anything about golf course architecture at the time, um, when you played BAP Springs, you inherently could feel that it was great, that it was different, and the only explanation is that Stanley Thompson understood why, uh, and he really understood what basically individuals were starting to figure out in the first decade of the 20th century, the early 1900s. Uh, am I correct in saying that old Tom Morris taught C.B. MacDonald how to play golf? Whew, that is a good question and probably a little bit out of my realm of expertise, but I do think that there was, uh, so, I mean, anyone that went to, to St. Andrews, I think even then old Tom Morris was... Uh, uh, kept in very high regard. If I if I remember, I've actually got the um, 
the evangelist of course uh, of golf, uh, George Bato's book on Stephen McDonald just behind me. Um, but yeah, I do believe that um, he spent a bit of time in St. Andrews and no doubt uh, most golfers would have wanted to pick the brains of, of old Tom Morris as they were there. Um, and then of course, uh, I mean, Donald Ross, uh, anyone that would have been from Scotland around that time uh, would have had an intimate uh, understanding of, uh, of old Tom Morris, his ideals, his precepts, and, and what he was what, what he was doing and why he was doing it. Um, so it would have been a very small circle back then, uh, with regards to to those who were in the the know and were considered to be uh, movers and shakers in the the early industry that was golf at that time. Yeah, it's it's funny how small that Oxford Cambridge Oxbridge set were, and. I guess the influence ultimately that they went on to have in the golden age of golf course architecture. Yeah. I mean, it, all you have to do is go look, uh, you know, next time you're at any of these, uh, the, these golf courses, uh, the, the honors boards in, in, you know, the, the halls of these, uh, these clubs and you, you keep seeing the same names coming up over and over again, uh, especially in the early part of the game. Uh, but it was, it was a, a small, small close knit community. Um, and I don't know if that was reflection. Maybe this is a, a Keith Cutton type question uh, with regards to his book. But, um, you know, could this be just a, a reflection of the fact that at the time, um, those individuals that went to those uh, universities that had those professions also had the time and the disposable income to perhaps not have to worry about putting food, clothing and shelter on the backs of you know, the, the children in uh, in a Victorian townhouse in, you know, in the, the, the east of London. So it, for, for whatever reason, uh, there, there was a, uh, a small amount of individuals, but perhaps that also is what laid the foundation for uh, such a, a momentous movement forward with regards to uh, our understanding of, of what makes golf good. Um, just being around individuals uh, that would be able to have these types of of conversations and bounce ideas off each other uh, would have been phenomenal. Um, I think I just am thinking about one example. Um, the opening, the opening day at St. George's Hill. Uh -huh. um, just done a little bit of research about, uh, uh, about the individuals that were reported to be on hand then. And what's interesting that at uh, Weybridge, when St. George's Hill opened, um, the, the individuals that were there were, were like the who's who of golf. So there was J.H. Taylor, James Braid, George Duncan, Alex Hurd, Tom Ball, Abe Mitchell, Horace Hutchinson, uh, Allison would have been there, um, and Colt. Wow. So you think the, the conversation... That oh, would to be a fly, fly on the wall for that particular uh, uh, get-together. And that's the thing. I mean, see, you imagine you get those individuals uh, sat around the, the bar at Weybridge uh, having that conversation. What would have been accomplished in the, in the, the, the thinking um, and, and the understanding of, of golf course architecture just in that single afternoon, October 2nd, 1913, how much was that worth? And then all of those individuals go away again. And then a couple of months later, that another course and, and that one's opening and there's another match to open it up. And they're all there again, talking about what they continue in the conversation. And so perhaps it is that small crowd and that intimate association and understanding that they had with each other that, that really spurned um, and, and forwarded this, this momental 
a monumental progression in our understanding of, of how golf should be designed and what we should actually be seeing on the ground. It strikes me as interesting any time I, I sort of dip into some literature and it appears that the the society, which would be the golfing society of Oxford and Cambridge, generally all these gentlemen were members of said society also. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, you, you look through, um, you know, obviously uh, John Lowe, Herbert Fowler, Harry Colt, um, I believe Alistair McKenzie was uh, was given his introduction or his um, his membership or introduction to the RNA through through Harry as well. So you, you have this subset of, of of great golfing minds that are you know, on on all intent for for all intents and purposes working with each other um, to to forward the game of golf uh, by pursuing their each individual careers. And whether that was because of their profession as, as lawyers or, or doctors, um, that they had these common ties that kind of ran through various levels and spheres within their lives. And it's just fascinating to see what, what that group um, in the, yeah, the early 1900s, before World War, well, the end of the 1890s up till basically just before World War I. It was amazing what golf was like then. Uh, I guess only in hindsight, we truly understand how incredible those couple of decades actually were uh, and what effect those those individuals and that time had on, on us even till today. In conjunction with your evaluating website project, I know you're also working on the Harry Colt project. You might tell us what inspired you to delve deeper on Harry Shoplin Colt, what you've been able to find as, as part of your searching and, and, and research. Yeah, so uh, Harry Colt is one of those individuals that I, I hadn't really heard of uh, growing up. Um, because there, there's uh, there's a bit of Harry Colt in Canada in Toronto, um, and, and I guess Allison in in Hamilton I think. Um, so there's some evidence that he was in Montreal as well, uh, but but it's thin on the ground. So there's there's not a lot of Colt content in Canada. Um, you've obviously got the connection to to Pine Valley, so everybody knows about uh, Crump and Colt. But really beyond that. Um, you know, old Elm, I guess, there, there's not a whole lot of Colt. And then you come over to um, the UK and you've got Harry Colt everywhere. Um, and I thought what was interesting was, for, for whatever reason, the the general population in England especially loves James Braid. Uh, they know who he is, they know who he was, uh, and anyone that has a, a, or a James Braid golf course likes to shout from the rooftops about it. Uh, what I find is that there's a reluctance for for whatever reason to to do the same with Harry Colt, and I don't think there's anyone that would argue that the portfolio of Harry Colt uh, against James Braid, um, it's not a difficult conversation to say that you know Colt was um, better. I think their their best was both equally as good, but the both being prolific architects, Harry Colt's just standard, the quality that he was able to reach with regards to his work is, is unbelievable. Um, and I had never been to a Harry golf Colt or a Harry Colt golf course that, that I didn't think was great. I mean, it, it's so true. A good, a good routing can, can make a massive difference. Um, and oftentimes I would play a golf course and then start doing a bit of research on it and it would be a Colt course. And there's loads of, um, there's loads of 
courses in and around London and in the UK that you, you get to, you play, and then you think, well, that was interesting. Like, that was actually really good. I had never heard of this course before. And then you find out it was a cult course. Um, so I think that that was kind of the, the beginning of it. And then after I started the Harry Colt project, I found out that Adam Lawrence was writing his biography. So a quick phone call and a quick email later, um, I assured Adam that I wasn't trying to uh, steal his thunder because he's done a tremendous amount of work. Um, but it's been really good. Uh, Adam's a, 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 a gentleman and uh, we've been able to do some work together. If I come up with stuff that I don't think he's found, uh, I'll share it with him to, to contribute towards what, what he's doing. And um, it, it's been nice to, to be able to learn a little bit more. So uh, I think it's just the, the reverence um, for Harry Colt and the fact that we don't know a lot about him. Uh, there's been a couple of biographies, uh, but no one's actually been able to, to really nail down exactly what Harry Colt's been responsible for. Uh, but Adam's well on his way and uh, been able to, to perhaps help in a very small way uh, towards that. And even just raise the awareness of, of Harry Colt um, is great for those clubs and is good for his legacy. And I think we'll probably be hearing a lot more about him after uh, Adam's done with his book. Yeah, I'm pleased to announce that uh, Adam has agreed to come on at some point to speak about Harry Colt in greater detail. So um, I'm minded just to mention that he did not seem to be the most photogenic of people in that there's not many pictures of him for some strange reason. But also, he seemed to be quite a self-deprecating sort of individual. Uh, you mentioned Swinley Forest there at the beginning. I know he referred to that as his, his least worst course. Uh, seems to be not the type of character that Dr. Mackenzie was. He seemed to be quite a self-publicist and uh, would tell anybody that uh, that would care to listen that he was possibly the greatest architect known to known to man. But you might speak about Harry Colt's importance in terms of the the start of, I guess, formalized golf course architecture. Yeah, so, um, I mean, recently I think Adam wrote that uh, he's found some, some writings from Colt from the 1890s, which would <laughs> put it pre pretty much as the first, uh, first bit that we've actually got. Um, so we know that he was involved at Rye. Uh, and perhaps even there were other projects in and around that time as well that uh, that Adams come up with. Um, but it, essentially, you know, he he did a lot of work. Um, the, I think the common thread between a lot of these early uh, strategic golf course architects, if you want to call it that way, Harry Colt, Abercrombie, J.F. Abercrombie, um, they were essentially working with Willie Park Jr. So they were taking his his routings um, and then doing things like. Uh, bunker placement and greens um, so what had essentially been established um, was the the skeleton or the bones of a lot of these golf courses and then this idea of taking the the rugged nature as opposed to almost as a juxtaposition against the the, the victorian uh, way of introducing hazards to a golf course and almost trying to incorporate a, a, a natural um a natural looking hazard, which was for all intents and purposes, just as artificial as, as any Victorian or penal hazard, just done in a manner that uh, had a bit of, of art as opposed to just simply a utilitarian purpose. Um, and then I think in time, we started to understand, we started to see um, through the first decade of the, of the, uh, the 1900s into just prior to World War II, 
uh, it almost seemed like by 1909 through till 1914, a lot of the work that these guys were doing uh, is, is almost like peak strategic golf course architecture, uh, especially when it comes to Harry Cold. I guess we got to remember also at the time that the construction process that we would consider now wasn't in existence. I mean, the steam shovel per se in terms of uh, was, was post-World War One. So a lot of the, this construction is literally lie of the land using the existing contours and maybe really only pushing up grains and tees. Would that be fair? I think that's very fair. I mean, I was uh, the first time I played, um, you know, so some of these courses that haven't been altered. Um, you know, when you when you get to go and walk around uh, Wentworth East, um, when you look at uh, Swinley Forest is a good example. Um, e even some of the work at, I'm um, thinking the, um, um, uh, Moore Park, uh, Harry Colt, the, the high course, um, so there's the East West and then, the the, the high and, and the high course. Okay. There's not a lot of Harry Colt left. Uh, it's been lengthened, uh, tremendously compared to what it would have been originally, but around those green complexes, because of what they were working with was essentially horses, plows, and as many local people that they could drag out of the pub. Um, <laughs> but that was basically the workforce. Um, I mean, there's there's records of uh, upwards of, of 600 people building some courses in London. Um, just a tremendous amount of manpower. But I think in that, what you what you didn't lose was a lot of those natural green or natural contours that would be found in the land um, because they just they weren't dealing with instruments or implements big enough to take them out. Um, and as rudimentary as some of that construction was, literally pushing up tees and greens, um, uh, even drainage. Uh, you walk around again, Wentworth East, um, and even Swinley Forest. Uh, you can see, you know, how they how they dealt with things, drainage ditches that they that they put in, and then they would use those because they had to. So it, it's almost because they didn't have all that technology. They had to be really clever about what they did, and it's almost the the simplicity. And the rudimentary nature of it that makes it so so good, um, and I think that's for me um, what what really stands out about the the early work of these these individuals is that they were accomplished they were able to accomplish such good goal using very basic uh, implements, uh, wheelbarrows, shovels in a lot of cases, and just being ingenious, uh, they were able to create golf courses which have stood this like the the the, the test of time. I still consider it to be some of the greatest golf courses in the world. I'm getting a flashback to a description of the construction process at Casa de Campo, the teeth of the dog in the Dominican Republic. And that would have been 1960, Pete Dye. But I heard a story about the, the, the essentially filling in a coral reef, literally with people, wheelbarrows and dirt. And that took an hour, a year and a half, I think. So, so, so big was the job. They actually, I guess, needs must. I suppose the Dominican Republic perhaps wasn't quite as flush with dozers and whatever else in the 60s. So you made do with what you had and the raw material with people. So get on with it. And they actually seeded the fairway above, above where they were filling in and basically just transplanted the grass down a year and a half later when they were finished with the filling in process. Anyway, a complete aside and not era specific at all. No, but 
it, it proves the point, doesn't it? Um, I mean, there's so many more factors that we have to be worried about today when it comes to golf course construction and maintenance. Um, <laughs> just the the environmental side of things. I mean, that would, it would just never happen. Not not in the West, anyways, or in, in most areas in the world. Um, but but you're right. Uh, they just had to be ingenious. And if they had something that was really good, then they would just leverage it. They would get everything they could out of it. Uh, you know, so as, uh, another little example, um, Prestbury, Harry Colt course. Um, you know, you got this awkward piece of land. It's, um, it, it's a parcel with lots of jagged edges. Um, there's like triangle spurs that come off of it. There's basically one thoroughfare um, of, of kind of a, a long depth of the property. Uh, clubhouse at one end and then basically you can run two two holes concurrently back to back and maybe get uh, a decent size par four and maybe a par five out of it which colt did um three times what's interesting is that in the middle of the the, the middle of the property there's a stretch of land that's on the side of a hill um and if you look at uh that piece of property it's amazing what he was able to get out of it so Again, just bringing up this picture so I can see it in this little band of property running through the center of it. it he almost uses it as a pivot as he um, as he roots the golf course. And in that little stretch of land of just a couple of acres, uh, he's got the fifth green beside it is the sixth tee. Then he's got the first green. Behind that, he's got the second tee. Uh, beside that, he's got the 13th green. Then he's got the 17th green. And then in through work with all of those things, he's got the 14th and 18th tees. So if you were to draw it up and say, this is what we're going to do with this, like, I don't know how many acres it is, probably less than 10 acres. We're going to have all these green sites, all these tee boxes, and we're going to play in it from all these different directions. There's no way that it should work. But it does, and it, and it works really well. And I think for me, uh, that that is part of what makes golf course architecture really, really cool. So how do you take that piece of land? How do you find 18 holes? And how do you make them all work? And, and Presbury is just a uh, an absolutely amazing um, example of, of what can be done on a, a small footprint if you're willing to, to break the so-called rules, uh, which of interest Harry Colt did. And we've actually just found um, some, some evidence that uh, links Alistair McKenzie directly to the course. So it's not just a Colt course anymore, it's a McKenzie and Colt course. So that's, uh, that's one of our recent discoveries actually that we've been able to share with the club. Um, is that, uh, yeah, Presbury is a Colt and McKenzie, not just a Colt. So, one of those things, an amazing little project, um, amazing little site, and it's a great golf course to play, but when you can also view it from or through the lens of golf course architecture, there's so much more to, to get out of that one golf course and one round of golf. Um, just, yeah, incredible to me, uh, uh, perhaps boring to, to others, but I, I find it absolutely fascinating. Now, what you, I guess, express and explain there sounds very intimate as opposed to, I guess, our, you, you mentioned the golf, the rules of golf course architecture or so-called rules of golf course architecture and our modern interpretation that holes should be separated from each other, that golfers should be separated from each other, 
that long view is perhaps as a result of the separation are somewhat less in demand or less available as a result of that separation. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. I mean, there there is, I mean, again, Swinley Forest is another example. I keep coming back to it just because we're on Colt. Um, but the views that you get across those courses, so um, like after five looking up the hill, uh, then when you get to nine, so basically from everywhere you are, you are on the course, you feel like you're on your own. You're in this intimate little, you know, just you and your group. But you can also see various holes or bits of holes all over the course at, at, at any one time. There's really no point on the course where you, you can't see what's going on around you, but you still feel as though you have a little bit of peace and solitude. Uh, but then you get other courses. Um, again, going back to another uh, design that Colt touched, Royal Worthington, uh, Mildenhall. Absolutely brilliant little golf course, uh, nine hole golf course. Uh, the holes cross each other. Uh, there's shared fairways. Um, you know, it, it, for all intents and purposes, it, it shouldn't work. And it does, and it does it brilliantly. Um, but again, there's just those, the, the ability to, to understand why they work and how they work. Um, and that even if something breaks the mold or breaks the rules, that it doesn't mean that it's not good. And I think the ability to to evaluate golf on its merits individually, whether it's good or not, is a way to get a lot more enjoyment out of your golf and to enjoy lo- uh, golf on a on a different level uh, rather than just pencil and card, um, you know, keeping track, stroke play as we go around 18 whole courses with fountain on 18, 7,200 yards and par 72s. What you're speaking about there is suspend what you think you know. Variety is to be celebrated. And if it brings you back and it's fun, that's cool. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, I mean, I think, I think golf would be so much better if, if that was the, the criteria for it. Is it fun? Like when I finish 18, I don't want to go in. I, I just want to go back to the first tee and start again. And I think if we, if we, if we aim for that, as opposed to, you know, what the scorecard says or uh, making it tough for some amateurs, uh, top level, top, top level amateurs or professional golfers um, that play it one or two days a year, or maybe even four days a year. And, and we just worry about making golf fun for the other 361 golfers and the rest of the 99% of the population. I mean, what an amazing thing that would be if we could actually create fun golf. And then this whole thing about growing the game. Well, to be quite honest, I think if we had golf like that, that golf would in a lot of ways grow itself because um, people just come back it's quick it's cheap it's enjoyable it's fun um, and we wouldn't have to you know there, there wouldn't be a lot of discussion about, about how we get more people into the game and how do we keep them coming back we've established that the Colts and the Morrisons and the other gentlemen had the opportunity to and the time to invest thought and effort uh, but also the means that they, they that afforded them that opportunity and the interest. You mentioned Tom Simpson in the introductory piece with regard to Woking. And I know that courses designed by Mr. Simpson are particular favourites of yours. We have a dearth of Simpson courses here in Ireland. However, County Lau, Carlow and Ballybunion are three such courses that I'm pretty familiar with. What do you think characterises Tom Simpson's approach to golf course design? Yeah, so Tom Simpson for me is the he's the doyen. He at least his uh, his architectural theory, his ethos, and 
essentially how he practiced, how he put it into into the ground. Uh, for me, that's that that is the ultimate. If you if you ever had a chance to work on a golf course and then design a golf course, I, I would want to use his design theory and ethos. So why? Uh, and, and basically, it's something I've come up with. Um, again, I don't know if someone else has used this term, but strategic minimalism is, is what I what I like to refer to it as. So the the essence is just simplicity. And I think at the time, um, if you look at a lot of the writings, especially of Mackenzie um, and Simpson, they were referred to economy. And I think what they were saying was, yeah, we don't want a proliferation of 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 design elements that are going to cost a lot to build and maintain. Um, but as well, in order for to in order to use less and use it more effectively, it just has to be designed better. Um, and I think that's one thing that separates Colt from McKenzie or Colt from Simpson for me, is that when you look at um, Colt's plans or his renderings, he'll oftentimes draw the, the tiger route to the, to the hole from tee to green and then the rabbit route. And he will have placed bunkers um, at various points for each of those two categories of golfers, uh, which is fine. Um, and that's that's great, and it's just the way that Colt went about it. What's interesting to me is that uh, Simpson did exactly the same thing, but he didn't use two sets of hazards in order to create intrigue or suspense or strategy for those two categories of golfer. He he effectively used one set of hazards, and if he could, only one hazard. Um, so, for example, like the fourth the fourth hole at at Woking so the although it wasn't his creation and design the essence of that one hazard in the middle of the fairway that center line um kind of laid the found foundation for what he would do moving forward um so the the one modern hole again I've never been to play it but I've spent an awful lot of time looking at it and thinking about it is the second hole at Talking Stick which is a Corey Crenshaw design in Arizona and I know Tom Doak um, again is a, a massive fan of that hole I think I read an article that uh, that had come out a while ago that it was the hole that he felt he wanted or if he could design if he could put his name beside any hole that he hasn't designed which one would it be and I think it was that um, but it's amazing it's a it's a par five. Um, the only features on the hole are the tee and the green. There's out of bounds and a straight line left side of the fairway. And there's one bunker complex on the front right-hand corner of the green. But that one bunker complex, two bunkers, influences your thought from the tee, your second shot in, and your third. Um, so you've got this massive expanse of fairway. You can go anywhere you want on it. The second shot, you have to ask yourself, am I going to go for the green? Uh, or am I going to lay up? And really through one hazard, now you get uh, cerebral golf on your tee shot, your approach, and your third. So your layup and your approach. Uh, so for me, it's it's that that typifies Tom Simpson. He He wanted to get the absolute most out of a single design element to create suspense, intrigue, and risk and reward and the ability to do that using just one hazard i think is the the epitome uh, of great golf architecture the, the ability to do that is is genius um so 
Tom Simpson would often say that you need to be um, as cerebral um, as you are talented. So you need to use your head as much as you need to use your hands. Um, he wanted to decorate the landscape. He wanted to make it more beautiful. So similar to Alistair McKenzie, but he wanted to do it with strict economy. Um, it, it should have that feeling of being alive. So when you play like New Zealand, Cruden Bay, Haley, Liphook, um, you, you just, it feels different. It's, it's got a different feel to it. And the, the cool thing about all of his designs is that although you're inland on Heathland, you feel as though you could be in Scotland playing links. And it's that respect for the classics, um, classicism that is, is interwoven in his design ethos. And, and there's no one, I don't think anyone, that does it better than Tom Simpson. And that's why I res like respect and just revere because he, he was so good at what he did and he did it to uh, a standard that was, was so elevated um, he, yeah, it's just, I have nothing but respect and admiration and, and revere for, for what he did, not only to, to espouse what he thought was good, but then also to be able to produce it. Um, it's phenomenal. You're a fan then, so. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, I mean, Tom Simpson for me is it just, he's absolute. It's absolute genius, um, and I think the the more the more Tom Simpson we could get back into golf, the the better it would be, um, and not just from a playing point of view, uh, also with regards to input and maintenance. Um, so the other things we haven't seen a whole lot of um, use of blindness. So I'm not saying that every hole has to be Klondike and dealt, but uh, Tom Simpson would often use blindness when it came to um, Know, pin positions on a green he, he would try and hide some of it or he would introduce some sort of um, basically mental or visual confusion so things would look further away or closer than they actually were um, he would do that by using echelon bunkers or size of bunkers where he would put three in a row and then the first two would be smaller and the last one would be bigger all sorts of really really cool stuff um, but it's those little things that really really set him apart so we, we haven't been able to find a direct tie to Tom Simpson in West Sussex, but I mean, the, the, the echelon bunkers on the 17th at West Sussex are phenomenal. Um, the, the three holes, the three par threes, I think it's five, six, and eight. Um, again, three different par threes uh, in the span of four holes that are completely different to one another, um, but are, are all equally brilliant. And I don't know any other golf course architect that was able to do what he did. Um, the, the height of his work is, is just unbelievable. It's so, so good. It's ironic, in fact. I've got two notes down here, and you, you bet me to that blindness uh, point. I know there are probably listeners out there, and certainly some of my mates who aren't great fans of blindness or indeed think that centerline bunkers are unfair what or how could one make a case to them that actually variety is good and having different challenges presented to the golfer is in fact to be welcomed as opposed to a mono homogenous scenario yeah so i mean let's let's take blind blind hole to start so 
Uh, I'm just thinking, so obviously one of the most famous blind holes, par threes, uh, Dell, the uh, hinge. So the right side of the green is visible. So if it's pinned on the right, you can see it. If it's basically pinned on the left, you can't. Uh, and they probably put like a, a white rock on the hill to, to give you some sort of, uh, you know, wayfinding to get it there. But it's quite, quite simple, really. If you can't see the pin, it's on the left-hand side of the green. You just have to hit it over. Uh, but I don't think there's anyone, any golfer, that's ever played that hole uh, and wasn't curious about what his shot, where his shot ended up as he was walking that, whatever it is, 150 yards from the tee to the green. Uh, and that apprehension is, I think, what makes semi-blind or blind holes quite interesting. Um, and then you go to a hole like Painswick uh, in Gloucestershire, and, and it's literally, um, I don't know, 30, 40 meters, meters or, or yards in the air so up this blind hill to an old iron age fort to this massive punch bowl and you literally cannot see any of the green any of the flag you just have to trust that if you hit it over the the top of this hill you get it on the green so i can see why some people don't like a hole like that because they like to see where the ball goes but for me i mean of course you never want to play golf or a golf course with 18 blind holes you know that that wouldn't be great um but variety is is kind of it's the same old thing as spice of life um and i think what tom simpson did was that he he wasn't necessarily a, a fan so much of uh making things completely blind but he would oftentimes um the, the idea was that if you had an approach to the green so let's say in the modern day verbiage you you have a, a wedge in your hand you should be able to see the, the bottom of the flagstick. So, but if you're on the wrong side of the fairway or you were playing a long shot in where you actually weren't aiming at the pin directly, then maybe it's okay to have half the pin obscured uh, by a bunker or uh, some sort of false front or some sort of landform in front of the green. Um, and I think what, what that does is not, it's not blindness for blindness sake, but what you're trying to do is essentially introduce a little bit of, of anxiety so that it's not so straightforward. I mean, and that's kind of why I play golf without a rangefinder now. Um, Cause I think those courses that do it really well uh, is you're not pulling out a laser and getting like a number to a pin that you can essentially just fly it to a certain distance and you just hit that club and hope for the best. Uh, but you've got to rely upon your senses. So you, you as a golfer need the skill to be able to look at something and try and figure out what is the architect doing? Um, why does it look this way? Is it 140 yards or is it 160? And that for me is, is, is probably part of golf that, that we've lost just because of GPS and laser range finders is the ability to, to understand golf, see golf and then react to it. And that's something that perhaps we don't get a lot of from the modern game because not that it isn't there with a lot of these old courses just we have the technology now to to surmount that i guess it's uh down to what mr five times peter thompson talks about simply is judgment and an appreciation of how one judges a shot absolutely and i, I mean maybe that's exactly when we come to talk about centerline bunkers you know you have tyrell hatton who I think it was Tyrrell that, that was moaning about the fact that uh, he couldn't hit a par five and two and that he went into the centerline bunker. Yeah, I was links there probably six weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting that, well, okay, I mean, you can argue it. Um, Alistair McKenzie and Bobby Jones at Augusta National 
They designed that course so that every single par five could be reached in two if the individual hit two perfect shots. So if you want to hold that up as the standard of what a three, hot, three uh, shot hole should be, then I guess maybe he's got a point. You know, you, you could argue that Bobby Jones and Alistair McKenzie thought that maybe that was, you know, a good, a good thing. Um, but uh, the, the death of a proper three shot hole, um, you know, what a joy it was. You know, you watch some of the, 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 the old footage at the Open Championships where you got like Seve with a two iron going in full bore at like a par five into like the teeth of the wind. And you're like, yeah, where's that shot now? But anyways, going back to centerline bunkers, um, the, the, the thing in the modern game is that the, if you can hit it high, if you can hit it straight and you can hit it far, that's a good shot and it should be rewarded. And actually in 2022, we're going back to the 1892s because that was the idea back then was that if you could hit it high, straight and far, then you should be rewarded and it would be fair if you were. Uh, so the whole idea of, of Victorian golf, well, when you came inland, you know, we should reward good shots, but you know, as well as I do, when you play Lynx golf, you can hit it long, high and straight. And if it hits the wrong part of that fairway, it's a crapshoot. Like you, <laughs> it can go anywhere. Um, and so we got a little bit, when golf came inland and we started designing and building golf courses, according to what we thought was right and fair, we got away from really the spirit of the game that was inherently linked to Lynx land golf. And, and that's where the guys like Alistair McKenzie and Harry Colt and Tom Simpson were saying, let's get back to the spirit of the game. Let's go back to the way golf should be played. And that's on the links, but we're just doing it inland. And how can we bring that here? Uh, and, and that whole essence of, you know, do we need to reward a good shot? Well, I think we should record, re reward a shot that's properly placed as opposed to one that's just hit high, straight and far. And that is the essence really of understanding golf course architecture and strategic design. SSR Mutual friend Mike Clayton says, if the measure of a good shot is where it is relative to the next shot, then actually being in that cross bunker is you've not hit a good shot. Exactly. And that's the point. So, um, you know, it's also Mike, uh, you know, he said to me one time that we're, we're, we're in trouble of, of starting to understand too much. The, the art of the game is becoming the science of the game. So we've, we've got into track man and numbers and, you know, permutations and, data crunching everything and the the art of the game like the way that Seve would have played it or you know even Tiger would have played it um like that that's that's almost dead and gone uh which is a real shame uh because I think there there is um there, there's a you know we, we talk about not wanting to um have two sets of rules for the pros and for the amateurs um and to be honest like I know a lot of guys that will play a half set or a short set they'll carry six to ten clubs just so that they can try to manufacture shots. Well, their skill set, including mine, is nowhere near a PGA Tour player's or, or even a, an elite amateur golfer. Um, but, but that bit of the game of trying to hit a fade uh, when you need to take some distance off, or you try and hit a, a running draw when you don't have enough club, uh, all of that type of golf, and you need the right golf course for it. But uh, all that, that type of golf, we're, we're, we've, we've lost basically on the, on the PGA and DP World Tour. Uh, except for that one month when they come over and play proper golf courses. Well, you could make the argument that watering the fairways in Royal St. George's last year for the Open Championship is a retrograde step because that was done under the, 
the F word. It's one of those things where, you know, the distance debate basically disappears when you have baked out Lynx golf. Because whether you hit a driver 300 yards and carry it 300 yards or you hit your three iron and rolls out 300 yards, it's still going 300 yards. And that, that burn that crosses at 300 yards is still in play. Uh, so now you've got to think about not just where you're hitting your ball or how you're hitting it, uh, but you also have to think about what it does when it hits the ground. Um, and, you know, how do you approach it? Um, you know, the, the aerial game is, is the status quo. So that, that's the way golf is played. But the running game, and I think that's the other thing that, that really strategic golf, golden age, whatever you want to call it, especially inland golf um, in the UK, in and around London, uh, that's what makes it so good is it's still receptive on a lot of courses to the ground game and if i can't carry it 250 in the air with a three hybrid i've still got a shot uh to try and roll something in and up through a couple of bunkers and for me that's really exciting to play so i guess for an average golfer or perhaps a little bit better than average maybe like a you know single digit the, the golf that we can play in and around london on these like classic designs is probably very reminiscent of the type of golf that was actually played when when golf course architecture was at its its very peak and that, that's an exciting thing uh that i really enjoy the, the ability to to try and almost see these golf courses through the eyes of using modern equipment modern tees uh modern ball but still be able to play the, the courses similar to, to how they should have been played or designed to be played Okay, I, I get it. You're a lucky devil. You live in North London. You have all that Surrey Heathland stuff on your doorstep. Obviously, our mutual friend, Mike Clayton, uh, always espouses the quality of golf that can be found to your immediate south among the leafy lanes of the Surrey Sandbelt and its environs. I'm assuming you've had much opportunity to explore the aforementioned leafy lanes. Yeah, so it, it's, it is true. Um, we're spoiled. And I think that's one thing that... Uh, England golf as a whole doesn't get the, the credit it deserves. So and if we're just talking about Lynx golf, yeah, okay. Scotland and Ireland, amazing. But then you've also got the, the English coastlines. So basically the world, Liverpool and up. And then you've got the Kent coastline. Um, but London itself, London proper. Um, so if you want to talk about Harry Colt, you've got Swinley Forest. You've got St. George's Hill. You've got Sunningdale New. Um, and again, that's not a hundred percent a Harry Colt, uh, Simpson was involved on that and Morrison was involved in that in the late thirties, uh, cause they weren't necessarily enamored with what Colt did, uh, to start off with. Uh, but then you've also got Wentworth, um, and we could talk about the West that's, you know, I'd rather not. Okay. But the East, the East is actually a really good golf course. And it's one that I really, really like. Um, and uh, quite fortunate to be able to have played that and a little bit of access to it um, every once in a while. So th those are like good golf courses that I particularly enjoy. Um, so that, that's kind of up the Colt Avenue. And then you've got this other fellow by the name of Herbert Fowler. So you've got the Berkshire and, and Walton Heath, um, 236 hole courses, the red and the blue, and then the old and the new. And for me, Walton Heath, old, the back nine, it took me a, it's a little bit like the old course. You have to play it a couple of times or walk it a couple of times uh, or just think and ruminate on it in order to get it. But once it finally clicks, it is so good. So Walton Heath Old uh, is a particular favorite. And then just down the road from Walton Heath, again, if you, if you don't have the money to play those 
courses or it's just not possible Rygate Heath is is a great little little golf course literally over the M25 from Walton Heath um, then you go into Abercrombie so you've got Warpliston um, you've got the Addington and you've got Knoll Park so the Addington we'll be hearing more about uh, CDP uh, what they're doing there um, and and Ryan knows the, the the owner it's already broken into the top 100 I think UK and Ireland on one of the recent rankings, um, but that will go into the top top 100 if it's if it's done and it will be done right. Uh, I think quite confident that it'll get very close, if not break it. Um, so Addington is one that we'll be hearing a lot more about. And then you've got his work at Knoll Park, which is similar and maybe even a little bit more in excess than what the Addington is, just with regards to topography. It's a little bit more extreme, uh, but it's cool to see. Um, you got the three W's. So you've got Woking, West Hill, New Zealand, Tom Simpson, um, Harry Colt. And it's not just the big names that we mentioned, the Swinleys, the, the St. George's Hill, the Sunningdales. Um, you've got little courses like uh, Cuttington, Denham, Rickmansworth. Uh, Rickmansworth, I think, is like less than 20 pounds to play. Um, it's just beside Moore Park. So it used to be the third park at, or the third course at Moore Park. Uh, the, the east and then it became Rickmansworth uh, but again a little Harry Colt Muni that you can get on you can you can literally rock up and you can play the course and it's it's great uh, conditioning is not brilliant it you know there's a couple of ropey holes now um, but probably 15 of those 18 holes are good golf holes and it's cheap in the middle of London um, and then if you go down towards Dorset well you got Hankley, Stoneham, Broadstone as I mentioned previous um, Hockley again um, it's a, a little downland course uh, by, by Winchester. Um, and then, of course, Liphook. I think Liphook and, and it is absolutely stunning. And I, one of my particular favorites, if not my favorite, is, is West Sussex, Pulborough. Um, it is just superb. Uh, it's so, so good. It was a staple of the world top 100. And it's only gotten better. And I don't know where it's gone because it's, it's, it's good. I hope you're on uh, on commission from England Golf or something like that. Unfortunately, not. For a Canadian to tr throwing so many bouquets at, at at your local golf clubs, it's uh, it's it's quite uh, arresting. Well, I, th I think that maybe that it, that's part of it is the the fact that uh, you know at home we didn't have golf like this, um, and for the most part, it's accessible. Uh, okay, some of the tee times might be difficult to get, um, but if you're persistent and you go about it the right way, none of those golf courses are impossible to get on. Um, so I think for me, that that's part of it. Um, is that they're accessible, it's great golf. Um, it, it's, it's basically in London um, and it just gets overlooked. Um, but maybe it's because, I think that's part of it, is that you, I think if you'd be born and raised here, you, you just take it for granted, even if you are an avid golfer how good the golf is until you find yourself in Saskatchewan and you're playing greens that are, that don't have grass on them. And we, we oil them to, to keep the dust down. Uh, and you have to rake the greens after you're done putting. Well, then when you come to London and you play golf, you really appreciate what you've got. Um, and, and that's, that's perhaps what some of it is, um, is that I still don't take it for granted. Um, I think it's a privilege to be here, to live here. Um, I'm a British citizen, but 
it's still a privilege to be here and, and to have access to these things. Brilliant. Um, maybe we can look at contemporary design for a, a minute. Mm -hmm. um, Pete Dye has often suggested the only way to build a golf course is to build it yourself. The statement I just read there would seem somewhat incongruous with this, with some of the construction that has occurred over the last 60 years since Pete stopped selling insurance and devoted his time to designing golf courses. Pete Dye's legacy is still with us through his many courses, obviously. It's also arguable that just as importantly he may have spawned a neoclassical or second golden age movement within the realms of golf course architecture. You might tell me if you agree with this assertion and perhaps expand upon Pete and Alice Dye's influence and contribution to the affirmation return to more traditional strategies and the approach to course design and construction. Yeah, so I think you're spot on. Um, I don't think anyone fully understands yet how monumental Pete and Alice Dye's contribution to golf has been. Uh, and what I mean by that is in the mainstream. Uh, but I mean, you look... You look at the individuals, um, the, the shapers um, that, that started with them. And then basically, the if you want to look at the, the golf course architecture tree from Pete and Alice Dye down to our day, everybody that is doing great work uh, can be linked to them in one way or another, it would seem, worldwide anyways. I mean, there are exceptions to that here, um, where a lot of the, the big names that are, are practicing in the UK and Ireland uh, are, are essentially extensions of those individuals that were, were doing the work generations ago. Um, the one thing that has changed is that uh, the design build or the architect shape approach. Um, and in a lot of ways, um, the UK has lagged behind what's been happening in America. So it, it's almost like we're in the 1980s, for example. Um, and golf clubs are starting to get a bit more money. Uh, they're looking to invest. They're willing to make changes. They're willing to embrace. But the question is, are you going to invest in a 1990s style plan? Or are you going to invest in what basically the leading golf course architects worldwide are doing now, design and build? Um, and it's going to be interesting over the next few years to see whether because we're lagging, do we need to go through what golf went through in the rest of the world in the 1990s and early 2000s? Or can we just skip from basically non-investment in a club to doing it right now? And, and hopefully that's what we'll see. Uh, the, the problem with basically bulldozing everything and putting in ponds and fountains and making everything green and filling anything, everything up with white, white sand is the fact that once it's gone, it's gone. Um, and I think if we think about golf courses in the same way that we would think about listed buildings, um, we have to have that bit of an approach. We have to have a respect um, for, for what's come before. And some of that does need to be preserved, uh, especially the best examples of it. Um, not, not every golf course needs to be restored or renovated um, to, to its former glory, because if we're honest, it probably wasn't that good to begin with. And would it necessarily add anything to it today? Perhaps not. But when you think about these great golf courses, what a shame it would be, uh, not just for us, but also for succeeding generations, if what made them so good and those tangible links to the past 
we're lost. So the other thing that, that happens with a lot of modern golf course architects is that essentially golf clubs, um, committees, they, they go through this process. Um, and in some instances, um, perhaps it's the right name, the right connections, the, the right relationships, uh, or perhaps it's just the best salesmanship that wins the job. Um, that's well and good if you're running a business. Um, but if you're running a club and you want to preserve what makes you, your golf club and your golf course unique, um, hiring the best salesperson so that he can outsource the work to the lowest bidding contractor is probably not what's best for your golf course or your golf. And I'm not saying that all the work that's done that way is bad. It's not. But a lot of times you are at the mercy of supply and demand in the sense that the shapers that will actually come in to build your golf course or design your green surrounds or design your new greens or whatever it might be, or try and restore what was there before. Um, if the good ones are busy and you want to get your project done, you've got to accept whoever shows up with their bulldozer and their digger and their dumpers. Um, and unfortunately, some of the work that's been done, uh, even at some amazing, truly amazing golf courses, hasn't hasn't always been good uh and unfortunately there's some amazing stuff that's been lost and I, I guess that's where if a club was looking to to do work you would hope you would hope that they would be looking for someone that has reverential awe and respect for the golf course for the original architect that did the work that understood what made that architect tick that understood his design portfolio and where their golf course fits within it um, and trusted not just the architect that was selling them the, the shiny presentation, but they also knew the individuals that were going to show up with that digger on the back of their trailer to actually tear apart their golf course and make it better. And, and I don't think that that is always what happens, even with some of the big names that we know. That that's probably, I, I'm, I'm being very as, as diplomatic as I can be, but with, uh, with basically just being truthful. Um, and, and I think if you could get these guys to speak off the record, they would probably say exactly the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying and I appreciate your candidates and, and also your tippy toe through that particular matter. <laughs> um, perhaps I can maybe say a little bit more and you don't have to say anything. Mm -hmm. um, I guess you're talking about the difference between good work and great work. Um, you're perhaps talking about not just the the right name, but the right result. And in many ways, as Bradley Klein would put it, you're talking about, you know, sharpen up your bullshit detector in terms of the sales pitches. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, good shaping costs the same as bad shaping. And, you know, Mackenzie talked about finality. And with with many of these projects, oftentimes people have to go back to revise and uh, ultimately uh, when things are perhaps built to plan and not found in the dirt in a sort of way where it fits the sense of place, if you like, 
that actually you will have to revise and revise and revise because basically it it not to say it wasn't fit for purpose in in the first place but it was built to plan and you got exactly what it said in the tin as opposed to the best version of that particular bunker or drain or green or whatever it might be and as you said also you know you got to be conscious of what you might be losing in terms of the heritage of design in terms of the historical importance of what was there and perhaps who put that there and i'll give you i'll give you one example um so recently i had the opportunity to do a bit of work um with two architect shapers at, at a project in north london um and what blew me away with the time that i was there was essentially the the shaper would the architect shaper would would get in do his work um go back to the fairway stand at various distances different different aspects around the course and he had historic photographs that he could look at all these different features from um different angles different aspects uh, to see whether what he was building was actually working um and, and, it, and once it passed the eye test uh everything was hand finished. So <laughs> literally rakes and shovels. Um, in, in this particular instance, um, we were, were building just the top edge of a bunker where the grass would come and, and, and come over it. So basically three layers or four layers of sod, and then the grass would come over top uh, and then be pinned down. And basically we finished that top edge in one of these uh, little promontories that was coming into the bunker. And went back and he basically said, no, I'm not happy with it. I just don't like the way that that looks. And it was, a, it was, it was probably about eight inches of the lip of a bunker. And I, I stood back and I thought, oh, you know, not admiring my own work because I was just a, you know, a monkey, basically. I was just doing what I was told. But essentially he said, I'm not happy with it, it needs to change. So it all got torn out. Um, so a bit of abortive work. And then it got redone. Um, and the difference was, was amazing. And probably 95% of golfers would walk by that bunker and not be able to spot the difference or even see w what had been done. And even if you showed them before and after, probably couldn't pick up on it, but it, it, it's that level and attention to detail that, that I was blown away by. So the difference between a good shaper, uh, and an architect shaper is someone who, who, who has that passion to get it right. Even if it takes until, you know, it was in the middle of winter, four o'clock sun went down and we were there till six o'clock working in the dark with lights. Um, and then the, even just the foot of the, 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 the bottom bit of the bunker. Uh, so instead of having just a, a shallow bit of the bunker, that's just concave and that everything drains into it. There, there was pictures uh, from various golf courses saying that the best bunkers that he'd seen were ones that had levels and steps to within the bunker. Uh, and again, I, I had never really picked up on that, but since then, I've looked at pictures of, of great bunkers, um, amazing hazards. And guess what? It's not just a uniform bowl on the bottom of the bunker. There's more going on. And it's that level to de level of attention to detail that I walked away from that day of work just thinking to myself, like, that, that is actually, actually what you're paying for. And when you get someone who's directly putting their name against the work that's being done, that's the attention and detail that you're going to get because they can't hide behind a big name. Uh, being a small operator and a small shaper, what they've got to do is really got to stand out or else they won't get any more work. Um, 
And so even sometimes going with the little guys, um, you know, that that's where you're going to get is that, that craft uh, of building that you've seen um, that the kind of grace, the, the big and the best projects, especially the ones that are being done uh, stateside at the moment. Um, that that's the difference. And, and it is the difference is that that thin end of the wedge that creates the difference between very good and great. But that's what we're aiming for. You know, I've certainly heard a similar story with regard to a bunker renovation in the state somewhere, which I think Bruce Hepner was involved in. And as you say, it was not happy with that, rub it out, not happy with that, rub it out. And until he was happy, he didn't move on. Like it's a fixed price contract. Ultimately, he's not getting paid anymore, but just the pride in the work and making sure that it is as good as it possibly can be. It just goes to show you how important who does the work in addition to who creates the plan for the work and actually the ability and the willingness to have that change in the ground to be the best version of itself. Absolutely. Couldn't put it any any better myself. That's exactly what it is. Uh, and it's just that craft movement. You know, we, we've seen it with like microbreweries, with beer, with gin, uh, with butchers and, uh, you know, with barbers. Um, but, but we also see it in golf and golf courses. And, and actually, when you're spending that much money um, with something as to you and I and the wider world of golf geeks, as important as a golf course, um, that's what we should be aiming for, especially on these courses that are worthy of and should demand that much care, attention and respect. Uh, and hopefully we're getting to a point where we can match up those golf courses with the individuals that have that passion, that understanding, that reverence and that respect for what they're working on. Yeah, it's nice when a plan comes together. I think what we're talking really about there, Jasper, is legacy mm -hmm. and, and leaving a, a historical or a design legacy in the ground, not only from a, from the club's perspective as custodians, but also from a designer's perspective in relation to a calling card. Um, I recently read an article suggesting in an Australian context, context, should I say, that the Sydney Opera House and Royal Melbourne Golf Club sit on a pedestal in terms of their overarching importance to design heritage in general in Australia. This statement interests me in terms of the contemporary importance and benefit that world-class golf courses foster from a cultural and societal perspective. Would you agree with the assertion of their importance? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean... Uh... Again, this is with the backdrop of what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. So, you know, I remember having these conversations with, with, with fellows during the pandemic. And, you know, if someone that you know and love has got COVID and died, you know, or, you know, the, the horrors of war are on your doorstep are golf courses. First world problems, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, with that backdrop, we have to, you know, make these make these comparisons and assertions. But it's true. Um golf golf courses um they're tremendously important um and and the history and legacy of these courses is important too um you know you think about architecture so for example you talked about like the sydney opera house and and royal melbourne architecture is a really interesting thing um and i think about golf course architecture in similar terms to building architecture if you will um so so not everything has to be the sydney opera house you know there's traditional like but in Ben cottages up in Scotland, um, thatched roof cottages in England, Cotswold stone cottages 
you know, the shard. And you, you could make this argument that there's equivalence for each of those things within the golfing world. And, and one isn't necessarily better than another. When it comes to taste, we might have a preference of one over the other. But examples of all should continue to exist. And I think that's part of the, the, the problem with golf course design and architecture. And hopefully we can avoid that, similar to what we've been saying in this country, is that not everything just turns into... Blow out bunkers. Exactly. So just blue-tinted waters, fountains on 18, um, stripy fairways. Um, there's, there's a place for that. And if golfers like that, then they should be catered to. Fine, fair enough. That's not an issue at all. But if we got into a situation where everything was homogenous and everything just became that, uh, then we would be in, well, in a worse place than we are now. So I think the ability to keep golf and variety, uh, to cater to, to different tastes and preferences and to test different types of players and allow golf to be enjoyed in different ways, that's important. And, and there's room for that. And, and it should be celebrated. And I think that's what makes golf so good. So, I mean, I, I love going to, to Muirfield. I don't know a better experience in golf than 36 holes at Muirfield on a member's day. Absolutely amazing day of golf. The whole experience from beginning till end is world-class. Um, but as I said before, like Minchinhampton Old, I, I can really enjoy a, a golf course, sharing it with random ramblers, llamas, sheep, cattle, and, and horses. Or I could go to uh, Musselburgh Old Links and, and have a, a round on, on nine holes around the racetrack. Um, and it's not to say that one's better than another. They're just different, but they can all be celebrated. They can all be fun and they can all be enjoyed. And I think if we lose that, then we're in trouble. Yeah, and I get what you're saying there. I guess we're talking about appreciation of, of, of the myriad of of options that are out there and, and perhaps say an understanding that everything looking the same isn't quite what we want. I mean, in light of that, how do you think that golf history and, and the golf architecture landscape in terms of appreciation of, of, of both the history and the architecture has evolved in the UK and Ireland since your arrival on these shores, if at all? Yeah, so I think in the last 10 years, I mean, there's definitely, I mean, when I first started, um, you know, was there, there, there was definitely an ardent community of individuals here. And I think most of us probably know each other by our Twitter handles <laughs> more than anything else. Touche, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and to be quite honest, um, you know, I think, I think now um, there, there have been, you know, events or opportunities where after COVID we've been able to get together and actually put a name to a face and sit down and have a drink. And, and you know, instead of doing it in 140 characters or less, we've been able to sit down for, you know, put the world right. Um, in person. Um, so I, I do think there is a, a, a rising tide of awareness when it comes to golf course architecture. And hopefully we're well positioned to, to, to lead that conversation or at least provide um, a repository of information uh, for people to access. So history isn't going anywhere. It's just a matter of not losing it, finding it, and putting it somewhere where it can be accessed. And, and hopefully that's where Value 18 will, will continue to, to thrive and grow. But when it comes to golf course architecture, you know, you, you, you have a conversation now. And, and it's, it's strange to me because a lot of the conversation now that's happening in the mainstream about golf course architecture is down to the ball debate, which is actually because of equipment. 
and and because of that there's this this conversation that's ongoing that that's actually thrust golf course architecture golf course design into the the mainstream because it's had to be uh, discussed and spoken about and I think even just using the term, like when Rory McIlroy spoke about golf course architecture uh, for the first time, basically saying, I didn't even know it existed. And I've just kind of like been introduced to it and I've done a bit of reading about it. You know, all of a sudden it probably wasn't the first time he heard about it, just that he hadn't heard about it, but literally millions of golfers that were listening to him had heard about it. And you, you will find this, you'll find ardent golfers that have never really stopped to think who made this golf course. Why did they make it this way? Why is there a bunker there? Why would it be better if it was there or somewhere else? Um, so that, that, that conversation, I think, is, is starting to grow. There's people that have an awareness of it. And it's one of those things that once you get into it, it can deepen your appreciation of the game and help you to enjoy the game in a different way and at a different level. I, I guess, personally speaking, it's a greater understanding of it has actually probably changed the way that I view golf in its entirety and to use an Adrian Logaism, eyes up as opposed to eyes down. So not that I don't care how I play anymore, but it's not quite as important to me than perhaps it once was. And maybe that's just me maturing. Maybe that's me opening my eyes a little bit more. And I suppose when I've traveled of late, I've not been so keen to whiz around the place and play as many golf courses as possible. But, you know, I've sort of moved into focusing on multiple plays on fewer courses. I guess as a well-traveled golfer yourself, you might expand on whether quality or quantity is more important to you when organizing trips these days. Um, yeah, good question. So obviously, if you're, if you're planning a trip, especially to a destination where you, you, you know you probably won't make it back again, you, you kind of want to hit the highlights. So from that perspective, quality is, is important. And I've gotten to the point where I'd rather play good golf than I'd rather play good golf less often than to play bad golf more often. I, I know that sounds terrible. Um, You're a golf snob. So am I. So that's all good. Yeah. So it's, I, and I hate that expression, but it's, but, but it's embrace it, embrace it. It's, it's a, it's, it's just what people call you and um, they call me that too. So I'm cool. With it. Yeah. And it's cool. So uh, as golf snobs, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I guess the, the idea is that being a golf snob doesn't necessarily mean that you're flush with cash or that you have to spend a fortune in order yeah. to play good golf. So I think that that's sometimes where golf snobbery is, is sometimes misinterpreted. Um, it doesn't always mean that you have to be playing 36 at Muirfield or, you know, be at Trump uh, Turnberry or, you know, wherever else it might be. It just means you'd rather not play shit golf. Exactly. Yeah. As simple as that. And, and that's the point. Um, and I'll give you an example. So I've got a little trip coming up where I'll be going to the, the west of Scotland, hopefully, um, in the next month or so. And that will be um, Shishkin, Caradale, and Dunaverty. So three golf courses that most people would probably not go to because they didn't even know that they existed. If they did actually make it up there, they might go to Macrahanish. Um, probably wouldn't know about Mac Dunes. 
Dave McLeod Kidd, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, just north of Macrahanish, yeah. Um, and then you've got the Macri, which is over on Eiley. And then, of course, everybody or most people now have heard of Ardfin. But the only reason they've heard of Ardfin is because it's epic and expensive and hard to get to. Um, but those, all those courses um, in a trip are in the back of beyond. And that's and that's the thing. But you know, then then you get out to the Outer Hebrides. So then you've got Bara Askernesh. Most people have heard of Askernesh. And then you've got Harris. Uh, again, three three really good golf courses. Um, so on one hand, you've got probably one of the most exclusive, elite, private, expensive, whatever you want to call it, golf courses in Ardfin. But then alongside that, with that trip, you can tack on Shishkin, Caradale, Dunaverti, Barra, and Harris. Needless to say, if Greg Coffey is listening, we'd love an invite. Absolutely. So it's it's an amazing thing for me, and I think that's what I love about the UK is uh, and Ireland, is that you can go somewhere like Port Rush, Rossapenna, but then you also have um, Critch Island. What a place, yeah. <laughs> Next door. So, so you've you've got these you've got these wonderful things on both ends of every conceivable spectrum, but the golf is still brilliant and genius. Um, so, when it comes to quality and quantity, if I'm going on a golfing vacation, obviously I want to play as much great golf as I possibly can. Um, but to your point, um, you know, if someone said pick your ultimate golf trip, I would say I'm going to show up in St Andrews on Sunday, walk the old course in the morning, go and have lunch walk the old course in the afternoon, go and have dinner, and then walk the old course in the evening, and then play 36 for the next six days. And that will be my week. So that would be my ultimate golf That trip. sounds delightful. That would never happen. <laughs> <laughs> so when you get golf that's that good yeah. and, and architecturally on that level, and you could put, like you say, a handful of courses where you could do that on in the world, uh, Royal Dornock, um, you know, Valley Bunyan, you know, there's there's a handful of those courses where no matter how many times you play them, they just keep getting better and better and better because those layers just keep getting taken off and you just get more and more intimately acquainted with it. Um, of course, if you could spend any amount of time, be a member for a week and just play unlimited amounts of golf, you to me, that would be the ultimate. Um, so yeah, quality, quantity and quality usually go together, but I'd rather I'd rather play one really good golf course on a vacation than to play three or four substandard ones. Um, but also the other thing I was going to say was oftentimes I've done a lot of research before I've gone. So perhaps when I go out the first time, I'm looking for more bits and pieces than trying to learn them just through experience. And I think that's also helped me to get more out of those one-off kind of rounds at these various clubs. Um, I can kind of go and say, yeah, I didn't miss that because I knew about it before I went. Yeah. You know, I had a, uh, somewhat of a life-changing experience in Australia as I've mentioned before on the pod so forgive me listeners with regard to Kingston Heath I didn't get out to Royal Melbourne on that occasion but I'm hopeful of, of doing that the next time Kingston Heath I only played once I played badly but I could actually see all of those nuances and layers there it frightened the crap out of me to be honest with you just in terms of the strategic uh, I guess what juxtaposing what one should do versus versus what one shouldn't do in terms of where you didn't want to be. Um, and I guess it, it will be right up the top of the list when I do go back to Melbourne. 
because it, it's fascinating when you come across golf courses of that nature in Port Marnica with classes as a similar one, Port Rush, obviously Royal County Down. We have any number of, of um, and St. Patrick's, which I played four times very luckily last, last year, and I'm going back in May up in Rossapena. But when you have those nuances that you can see and with repeated play that actually you start to learn where you should be, where you shouldn't be, and, and appreciate the time and the effort that has gone into the ground to do just enough to give you those scenarios and those visual deception pieces and whatever else it's a it's just a joy rather than obviously and as you as you rightly pointed out it takes all sorts and if people like the floridian look that's cool too Mm -hmm. there's a reason why peter thompson called it fins on cadillacs absolutely yeah yeah exactly right so i think understanding golf and playing golf that keeps giving back if i play golf course once and i think i have no need to ever come back here again because I've seen it all the first time around without knowing anything about it before I came, it, probably a good indication of where I would rank it on my scale. And it would be closer to the one than to the 10. Uh-huh. In some ways, it's that Fazio effect, for want of a better word, that actually you get it all in one hit. And it's visually phenomenal in terms of just the aesthetic, what it looks like, the fountains, the white sand, the green, green, green grass. But that's it, potentially. And that's it. And and, and it's still enjoyable. I mean, I, I went out recently with a, a mate of mine who doesn't understand anything about golf course architecture. The, the concept of it doesn't even doesn't even know it's existed. I enjoyed my round. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed playing golf for the sake of playing golf. Um, it was a day out with beautiful weather um, at a golf course that wasn't great uh, from an architectural point of view. If I never go back, I won't be disappointed and I don't think I'll miss anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I still enjoyed my time with him because I was with a mate. We were outside, we were playing golf and it was beautiful weather. What's not to love. Um, but for me, golf has become more than that. It's become a, a something that I can enjoy, not just playing and not just with friends, but also from uh, an intellectual point of view um, that there's, there's meat on those bones that can be enjoyed um, and in, in a different way than simply just playing the game, mm-hmm. but, but also thinking the game. Yeah, I, I can see we're two peas in the same pod, Jasper, uh, which is great. It'd be good when we get over to Ireland. No, 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 for sure, for sure. <laughs> hit, me, hit me up, I would be, um, I, I would be insulted if you didn't. Uh, <laughs> come here, just in terms of, in terms of, just some advice to the listeners, perhaps, and you know, uh, mm-hmm. and looking at the metrics, I know there are people far and wide in Australia and the United States and wherever else listening. So I'm very grateful for the, the reach that I appear to have. Assume for a moment that you're planning a trip for some of our listeners. The trip will consist of a three-week stint anywhere in Europe. You can view it in its entirety or as three one-week blocks. Where are you sending them? Right, so I actually thought a lot about this one. Um, Good. It was meant to make you think. (laughs) So I'm going to start off with one that is, I haven't done it yet. Uh Um, I've been dreaming about it for ages. Uh, and someday, hopefully, it'll happen someday soon. I think I know where you're going to say, but go on, anyway. Okay, so yeah, we're going to we're going to Paris for the, for at least a week. Uh, I thought you were going to mention uh, there, yeah. So, and, and Paris obviously is one of those places that that no one really thinks about as a golf destination. Um, and when we talk about quality and quantity, well, hopefully we've got both. And I I thought if we're going on a pure golfing vacation, we'll try and do 36 in a day, or at least at least 18 every day. So, Busy boys. 
absolutely. And girls. And girls. Um, so more Fontaine. Um, I, I would think from from my point of view, uh, more Fontaine, both courses, and then you've got both Chantilly courses, uh, Fontainebleau, Hardelo, Saint Germain, the new course at Les Boards, and Schiberta. So okay, we have to head a little bit to the south coast after we get done with Paris, but I, I reckon it would be worth it. So what you're getting there is a heavy, heavy dose of original Tom Simpson. So a lot of Tom Simpson's work in the UK was done for very wealthy aristocratic families. And most of those courses don't exist anymore. Um, or they were renovations of existing courses or basically making existing layouts better, which is great. Um, but for original Tom Simpson, where you just gave him like virgin land and said, right, work your magic. Um, France is probably the, the the top of the list. So for me, Paris, if someone just said, right, we're leaving tomorrow, where do you want to go? We can open up all the doors. We can get you in on the inside. I think that would be more or less where I'd go. And the one exception to that would be uh, the new course at Les Boards, um, the Gilhans layout. Um, so I think I think that one looks pretty amazing. I haven't played much or any of Gilhans's work, um, so I'd love to see that. By all accounts, um, it's uh, it's meant to be amazing. And I I, I I knew some of the individuals involved with the growing, uh, and then the management of it. So um, that's one that I would pick. So that's week one. Okay, we, we start in, yeah. in Paris. Week two. Um, where to? After that, we just basically hop over to London. Mm -hmm. So I thought we'd pack in more golf just because we're not heavy on the travel. Okay. Uh, so we're over to London. So Paris, London. Um, and again, we're doing 36 a day. So it'd be Swinley Forest, St. George's Hill, uh, morning, afternoon. It is summertime, prime, prime condition. You want to you wanna pack your blister packs? Yeah, we're going to need it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're going to do Swinley and St. George's Hill. So the, the two, I think best most original harry colt golf courses so uh as far as peak harry colt pre-world war one 1910 1911 1912 um i think colt at the height of his powers on some of the most amazing golfing ground that's those two courses has to be um then of course you've got the two courses at sunningdale uh, where you get a little bit of Willie Park Jr., Harry Cole, obviously, and Tom, more Tom Simpson. Um, I love West Sussex. Absolutely love West Sussex. So I would say 36 there. Um, and then you get exposure to the three majors. So you've got Hodgkin, Guy Campbell, and Hutchinson. Um, so the three majors. And we're confident um, that Simpson did work at West Sussex too, but we don't know exactly what he did or how much. Um, but between Hilliard, the three majors, and Simpson, you've got an outstanding layout. Uh, the 36 there in a day is, is spectacular golf. Um, again, back up to London for Walton Heath, 36, uh, old and new. I think the old uh, Walton Heath is spectacular. Um, it, it's got just that S of the old course but inland where you, you play it and the more you play it the better it gets uh, so it might be lost on you the first time you play it 
but you'll be able to play it again and again in your mind and you'll start to understand it as you do. Um, I'd have to go back to Woking in New Zealand. Um, I think they're two amazing golf courses. And especially if you're an overseas visitor, um, perhaps from Canada or the States, it's the type of golf that you won't see at home. So around 6,000 yards, Heathland golf, just intimate, um, just top, top English Heathland golf. Um, and there's just something about those, those two courses that's just special. Uh, you can't really put your finger on it, but you just have to experience it to understand it. And then lastly, um, it would be Warpliston and the Addington, just for that Abercrombie. So you kind of get in one little trip, Fowler, Simpson, Colt, Park, um, Abercrombie and Croom. So you kind of get in London within that little, little radius uh, exposure to the best of like these golf course architects that they ever did at the height of their powers. Um, and that's what makes London golf so special is that there's just such good golf from a variety of architects packed into like literally a few square miles. And then lastly, um, if you've never been, you, you have to go to Scotland. I, I struggled with this. And the only reason I struggled with it was just because if it's only a week, um, Ireland's too good to fit into a week. You, you need to spend three weeks in Ireland. Good answer. So you need to get Dublin, Newcastle, yeah. Portrush, Rossapenna, uh, Bali, you know, then all the way down the West Coast. You, you basically spend, start in Dublin, go north uh, and do the, well, what would be the north, east, north, northwest, west, and then southwest of Ireland and try and get as many great golf courses as you can in one go. It's a lot, a lot of driving along the wide Atlantic way there. Well worth it. Yeah. Three, some of the three, three best weeks of your life. But anyways, the trip that I, if we only have a week, yeah, just good. due to the geographic location yeah. with Scotland. So if we're, if we're landing in Edinburgh, um, we start off with Brunsfield in Edinburgh, uh, which you need a putter and a, a seven iron to play uh, just for chipping and pitching. And that's kind of the birthplace of, of golf in Edinburgh and, and East Lothian. Uh, it's free to play. Um, you walk out there and you're probably going to be chipping around people having picnics and, and walking their dogs. Sorry, sorry. Say, uh, say that again. It's free to play. Free to play. So they got a 36-hole short course. Um, you can literally walk up. Um, there might be an honesty box that needs a few quid. I can't quite remember. If there was, I put it in. Don't come. Don't come no, no, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so, so yeah, but I, and the, the reason for it is just because it's, it's, it's part of the, the homage to the, the roots of the game. Um, and I think that's something you, you can't buy history. And, and I think anyone that goes to, to Edinburgh, although it's not exciting or it's just part of the, the first trip, you should hit Brunsfield. And then followed up very quickly by Musselboro Old, uh, just the site of uh, some of the early opens. Uh, and then, because those are two really quirky courses, we'd finish the day in North Berwick. Uh, and North Berwick is probably one of my favorite golf courses. Um, it just, it's so bold and so quirky, and it absolutely breaks every rule that you think a golf course should be. 
Uh, and then your prime location for 36 holes at Muirfield, playing foursomes on a, uh, a members-only day. Uh, if you could swing that, that would be uh, quite an experience. Um, so 36 at Muirfield is, is, to me, the best experience I've had in golf yet. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to challenge that uh, in the future. Then what I would do is go up to, and I'll probably get in trouble for this, uh, especially if some of my mates listen to the podcast, but I would actually go to Glen Eagles, Kings and Queens. What? What? No, I no, know. No. At, at, least, at least you didn't. At least you didn't say the the centenary course or the Nicholas course, which I think is one of the same thing. So, so, the reason why I thought that this would be great, especially if you had someone coming over from North America to the UK, and they only had a week in Scotland, was just to show them the caliber of golf that's capable of being played uh, in Scotland, whether it's on the coast as links or inland. Mm -hmm. Glen Eagles Kings for me. It's the course that changed my mind about James Braid. Okay. So it's, uh, I think the Kings is absolutely genius. Um, what I love about it is got a character all its own. You could, you could drop yourself on that golf course, anywhere on the golf course, you could see one bunker and you would say, this is Glen Eagles Kings. So, and I, th I think that's a rare thing for a lot of golf courses because again, we've gotten a bit homogenous. Um, everything's starting to look the same, but there it's unique. There's got some individual character. So just to show that, uh, Scotland is not a one-trick pony. I'd be going to, to Glen Eagles, Kings and Queens. Um, I would end up in Kings Barnes on a Sunday. And the reason for that is that I would play 18 and then leave the afternoon to go and walk the old course when the one's on it on the Sunday. So essentially it's 36, but Kings Barnes and then uh, the old course. And that way you've got one of the best modern Lynx golf courses that's been built alongside the old course. 36 on the old course, uh, obviously, have to do that. Then I would jump up to um, Carnoustie, and I think Carnoustie is spectacular. Uh, and again, the reason why I chose Carnoustie was because it's a different type of links that you would find then. It's completely different to Kings Barnes, completely different to the old course. Uh, so it's a different type of links that you would find. Again, completely different to um, North Berwick. There's some similarities to Muirfield, in the sense it's a bit inland, um, but it's, it's its own type of links. Uh, so that's why I'd go there. And then I'd finish up with uh, Cruden Bay. And again, I'm just, I have to go back to Tom Simpson. Um, the run of holes between four and seven at Cruden Bay, you could do that loop endlessly and never get sick of it. If you had those holes, uh, you could literally play those holes over and over and over again. And that's not even to mention the holes that you have basically on the, on the far end of the property as you go out and then come back in. So that would be my trip. And if you had a little bit of time after Cruden Bay, then I would tack on the front nine at Royal Aberdeen because it You'd is have to. It's, it's spectacular. Yeah. yeah. So, so that would be my trip. And the reason for it is not that there's not other great golf courses. There is. Um, but it would just give you a flavor of the quality of golf in a variety of different types uh, in one little trip. So three weeks, London, Paris, and Edinburgh, Scotland, basically. Uh, and you would be a, that one trip, you, you could never come back to Europe again. And you, you would still say that you've, you've seen the best, played the best. And you would have to make it to Ireland once for three weeks. But other than that, um, you, you could die a happy, a happy golfer. It's just as well you know nothing about golf courses. 
well i mean uh, yeah and then you get australia and new zealand and the list goes on and on and i guess that's the beautiful thing about this game of course it does uh, of course it's probably a lifetime that you could spend and more uh finding these golf courses and enjoying them but that would be my my pick absolutely and 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 thank you very much for sharing your your knowledge uh on that on behalf of the listeners Um, i'd like to just take a look at your historical consulting for golf clubs for a second Mm mm-hmm Obviously, from a historical perspective, club fires have been a, a blight on the golfing world. Most recently, actually, both Oakland Hills in Michigan and Beaverbrook in Surrey have experienced significant fire-related damage. This tale is a common one amongst Irish and UK clubs as well. In addition to obviously hiring Jasper Miners at Evalue 18, what advice would you offer to clubs that lost everything at some point over time as a consequence of a fire? or perhaps were not as assiduous in their custodianship of documentation as they might have been. Yeah, so, I mean, this is something that uh, I think I've said it a few times, is you, you can't buy heritage and you can't buy history. You, you've either got it or you don't. Uh, and the problem with a lot of clubs is that perhaps they don't have any golf history or golf architects or geeks that you know have a passion for this type of thing. So, uh, unfortunately, if they have things, they're probably hidden in plain sight or someone's been through them, but not necessarily picked up on the nuances. Um, and if they're not careful, it can be lost. So it's not just fires. I mean, uh, there's a lot of times that like ink on parchment or paper is, is just lost over time. Um, so it's a race against time at the moment. And, and unfortunately, you know, what are we? Probably 100, 120, 130 years for some golf courses. Uh, and we're in danger of losing all of that. Um, and I think only only with the passage of more time will we understand how important or how early on we are in in golf, relatively speaking. So although it's an ancient game, more or less from what the early 1900s until now, we've kind of been taking this seriously. Um, so I would recommend, you know, if if it was possible and you had the members that were willing to do it to digitize as much as you could, whether that was photos, postcards. Um, the, the digital archives online are good, um, but if you do have any physical copies, you need to get those digitized to a high standard. So uh, things like the British uh, newspaper archive are great, but a lot of the scans that are done uh, are are not great. So any type of pictures or even some of the text is illegible. Uh, so if you have any of that, just getting them and digitizing them and keeping them is great. Uh, and it should be done. And, and obviously backing that information up to a, a backup device as well and actually have, have double and triple backup because things things can go uh, piton. Absolutely. So it, it's a matter, I guess, of, of first, it's not necessarily that there's not members who aren't willing to do that. It's, I think, having the individual to say that that actually is worth having. So there's there's been multiple times where I've gone into clubs. Um, I think of a project that we've done Recently, there was two centenary books written. So one at the 100-year mark and then one at the 125-year mark. And when originally I asked, you know, what is there in the minute books? Uh, this club was fortunate. They had all the original minute books from the beginning till now. Um, and they said, oh, there's nothing in there about the golf course. But the individual who went through those minute books to write the centenary book was looking for basically anecdotes and stories of prominent members. And they, they weren't even looking for information about the golf course. Um, and what we're able to do is basically take a lot of those uh, photos, maps, drawings, sketchings, uh, newspaper articles, 
uh, various magazines that were published uh, and start to piece together and uh, along with a lot of this information, the, the story and history of the golf course, which is at the end of the day, the golf club's most valuable asset. Um, and it is a labor of love. Um, you, you have to be interested in it when you're literally turning thousands of pages and trying to decipher someone's handwriting from a hundred years ago. Um, <laughs> you, you know, it, it, it's a labor of love to do it, but with a lot of the courses that we, that I've done research for, um, it, it's worth it because it, it's just helping to preserve um, the legacy and what's so important. And that that's the work of the, uh, the work that's been done on the golf course itself. In terms of the evaluating website, which I must say is a phenomenal resource. So well done. Um, and it, look, it looks great also. Some of the items you have for sale on the website are astonishing. And, and I don't, I don't, as you get to know me, you'll understand I don't throw bouquets around uh, <laughs> too much. I mean, Joe McDonald's water maps and sunrise prints are just extraordinary. I mean, the mm -hmm. reprints of the Harry Roundtree stuff from uh, Bernard Darwin's book, not to mention the exceptional photography from Adam Toth and Kevin Murray. First of all, I'm interested to know if there's any new collections coming out because there appears to be just a, a conveyor belt of stuff. And, and ultimately, with regard to the water maps, if a club wanted one done, how should they go best go about commencing that process? Yeah, so... Uh, just a little bit of a backstory. Basically, I'd been doing a lot of research on the old course, and I had bought every conceivable book about the old course I could possibly find. And again, going back to Tom Doak, um, he wrote that when he was at the old course, one of the tests to become a caddy was to, you had to name every every landmark on the old course. So I thought, well, there's got to be a map of it then. And I couldn't find it. And so I thought, well, I guess I'll just have to make my own. Uh, and that's where uh, I did a lot of research. And uh, Scott McPherson also uh, peer reviewed it. Um, so he, he's helped out a lot. And obviously, he penned the book, The, the Evolution of the, the Old Course. So it helped quite a lot. Um, but basically, we were able to create this map that's now since been endorsed by the St. Andrews Links Trust. So that's kind of where it all started with the, the artwork. But of course, I had like a printout from Google Earth with a bunch of like call outs and, you know, pen on paper, literally in highlighters. And I sent it over to Joe after I seen some of the amazing stuff he'd been doing on social media. And he very kindly basically decided to collaborate with me. And Joe's a, a, a wonderful person. Uh, he's just a top bloke um, and, and a friend now I can say, uh, which is nice. And that's probably more important than, than any artwork that we've done. Um, but with the, the research coupled with Joe's genius and his skill and talent, it's created something really special. It's, it's, it's been really good. Um, so to answer your question about the, the new artwork that's coming out, we've got quite a lot of stuff that we've been saving up for the 150th. So there will be, uh, some very interesting, um, artwork coming out. Uh, with regards to the old course so we're looking forward to uh to, to releasing stuff as we come up to the open Intriguing. Uh, which will be very very nice um so the uh, the sunrise is a, a taster uh of what's to come uh, but we've basically got what we need in order to to really really do well joe does anyways um so that's quite good and um 
if if there are clubs out there that are interested in, in doing something similar, um, then they can just get in touch. Just fire us off uh, an email. So uh, you'll find it or a contact form on the website. Um, just just send me a little note, and we can we can get everybody uh, going. So um, the the process overall is basically a drone scan that's done by a gentleman by the name of Sam Cooper. Never heard of him uh, either. Never heard of him either. No, he's uh, flies under the radar. This Sam. Uh, and then once he's done his magic, then uh, Joe takes that and um, basically does what Joe does best, is create stuff that no one else can. And then uh, the last leg of it is that we we kind of roll it out and uh, everybody does their bit and we come up with some some pretty amazing stuff. So it's, uh, it's yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes and how it continues. Um, but uh, that's uh, the long and short of it at the moment. Um, basically with regards to the the artwork so we're looking forward to a, a big summer and hopefully hopefully uh we've got some really exciting stuff for the the old course coming up fantastic again i think we've probably done golf courses to death but we're gonna go we're <laughs> gonna go again okay so all of our guests i don't want to let you don't want to make you feel left out so it mm-hmm. would be remiss of me not to ask this question even though i've really probably asked the question in a roundabout fashion already uh, Oliver, as uh, I, I know, you played a lot of golf in the UK and Ireland, um, and as someone who likes to prepare himself for golfing adventures, I'm very interested to hear where your top five courses that you haven't played, perhaps, on your bucket list are, and why they are on your bucket list in the first place. Okay, so uh, I thought just because I've left Ireland out until now, this is where this is a really good answer. Go. It started yeah. so well. <laughs> so. Um, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to heading over to Rossapena. So that's arranged. Um, hopefully this summer, uh, when the days get long enough that I can have multiple rounds, uh, we'll be over in Rossapena to see uh, St. Patrick's. Um, so for all intents and purposes, uh, that is, uh, that's one on the bucket list for me. Um, not least that um, I know um, Clyde Johnson and Angela Moser. So to be able to see their work firsthand um, and, and to have the, the inside story, I guess, on, 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 on the course and how it was constructed, and then to be able to see it um, of, of a proper proper geek out uh, when we head over. You want to make sure that Frank Casey Jr. joins you because he can tell you exactly who did what. Himself and his brother John were apparently on the site three or four times a day. So they did. They they may well have done a bit of shaping themselves. I'm not 100 percent sure, but Frank has kindly agreed to join myself and a mate of mine in May. So I'll get I'll get the lowdown as to exactly what happened. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. We're looking forward to that. So I'm, I'm hoping that we'll be able to make that happen. So that's uh, in the works at the moment, and there's some preliminary discussions going on, uh, and a, a very kind invitation that's been extended. So that is probably. Um, the, the number one and the reason why I picked that one for, for Ireland is just that it's a modern links um, and, and I, I think for me that that's an interesting when I go on a holiday I want to kind of see uh, a variety of things so that probably came through with regards to the trip in Scotland um, but I think in Ireland that would be number one so Ross Penna St. Patrick's um, just to see a modern great golf course second um, I've been wanting to get to Carn for an age and I haven't been uh, and then I think with the the new um, dunes course uh, meant to be spectacular 
And uh, again, going back to Joe, it's one of his favorite golf courses. And every time I speak to him, he always tells me about Karn. So that's kind of brought it up in my expectations because uh, Joe is a man of, uh, of, of good taste. And uh, if he says a golf course is good, uh, being a Hoylake member himself, um, then, then it must be. So Karn, Karn is up for, there. For sure. Ali McIntosh and Tom Coyne will be very pleased for you to, for, to hear you say that. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, so that hopefully will will come off uh, in 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 June, uh, May or June perhaps. Um, obviously, Bally Bunyan, just again the the Tom Simpson connection. Uh, that's one where I haven't been, um, but if you, if you're going to look at Tom Simpson and his contribution to links, um, Muirfield's a bit of an interesting one with Tom Simpson because it doesn't necessarily hold to um, the strategic minimalism that, that Tom Simpson was known for. So his work at, at Muirfield is slightly different than his work elsewhere. Uh, but Bally Bunyan is, is one that um, is, is right at the top for, for that reason as well. Um, and then, of course, you've got Royal County Down, um, just because of old Tom Morris and the, the inherent blindness. And it's one of golf's great links, and I've not had the privilege to play yet. So that would have to be on the list. Uh, and then another one that hopefully will be ticking off that's, uh, that's been organized is to Royal Port Rush. So, and the reason for that is that it's one of the, the last open road courses I need to get to. So I don't normally um, put golf courses on my to-do list because they've hosted a, a tournament. Um, but the one exception I do make is for the open because it's the best and that selection of courses is is top notch so that's uh, that's why i would have to include royal port rush so we've got st patrick's Carn, valley bunyan royal county down and royal port rush so hopefully hopefully this year uh in june if we can make that happen then then that would be good and then of course it was so difficult because you've got the island you've got port marnock you've got you know you could just go on and on and on um Lucky, lucky man to be living in Ireland. You won't be disappointed. But as you said earlier on, we tend to take for granted what we have on our doorstep. Absolutely. But the wonderful thing is that St. Patrick's adds to the whole quality of golf that's available. And as my colleague Ali McIntosh said last week, it's just wonderful that there's another course of of that quality in st patrick's that we add to the add to the list of, of people like yourself coming over so the more the merrier Absolutely. and 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 play early and often would be my recommendation <laughs> sounds good i can't wait listen just uh, uh, uh one final question jasper mm-hmm. uh you have obviously an extensive golf related library uh that frankly puts my 60 or 70 golf books to shame you might be kind enough to recommend two golf books to our listeners that might provide some entertainment enlightenment or anything else right so again just going down the the golf course architecture route um perhaps not the the first books to read if you haven't read anything about golf course architecture there's probably easier um first steps uh, or um gateway books if you want to call them that to golf course architecture but the first little bit the first few chapters of tom simpson's architectural side of golf again it it, it gives you the 
the, the strategy in a nutshell of what he was trying to do. And I think better than anyone else explains what strategic golf actually is and how it can be accomplished through design. So the, the second half of the book is a bit odd, if I'm honest. Um, probably best read with, uh, you know, a bottle of wine and, and probably some Armagnac by a fire. Um, he was a bit odd by all accounts, though, the same, wasn't he? I mean, he used to wear <laughs> a berry was. and a cape and, and, and didn't take any payments. And, and they used to think that Molly Gourlay was his wife. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it does get a bit odd as you get near the end of the book. Um, it's a bit philosophical and who knows whatever else. Um, but if you don't want to go down that rabbit war, then that's fine. Um, the first half of the book, you don't have to read the whole thing. The first few chapters is more than enough to get your head wrapped around what strategic golf course design is, uh, what minimalism is and basically from the mind of the best practitioner of it. So Tom Simpson's architectural side of golf. And then to stay with golf course architecture, I think the book that I like the most, as in the, the practical way to build a golf course, um, according to those principles, is George C. Thomas's Golf Course Architecture in America. Um, and it's just got, it, it's a big book, there's lots of text. There's also lots of pictures and diagrams and green sketches and examples and photographs. And, and between the two, you would have like the philosophical um, kind of design hallmarks ethos way of thinking from Tom Simpson. And then on the other hand, you would have here it is in practice in the ground, George C. Thomas, Golf Course Architecture in America. So between those two, if those were the only two books that you ever read about golf course architecture, um, you, you would have a good understanding of what it is, what makes it good, and be able to evaluate your own golf course uh, and the other ones that you play. Excellent. Well, Jasper, it's been a great pleasure to speak with you on the pod. I'd like you to wish you continued success with evaluate18.com. Actually, before we go, you might tell people mm -hmm. how they can get a hold of you if they so wish. Sure. So uh, the website is evaluate18.com. So E V A L U. 18.com so we evaluate golf courses from a historical and architectural perspective hence evaluate18.com there's a form that you can fill out that will get pings directly to me uh, you can also email me at jasper at evaluate18.com and i'll follow up straight away um, yeah so that's the best way to get a hold of me or you can just dm me give me a follow on social media uh, twitter is usually best uh, and then just give me a dm and uh, we'll continue the conversation there Perfect. Well, as I said, uh, continue to success with evaluating.com and indeed the Harry Cole project and whatever other aliases you have on Twitter, because I think there's a few more. <laughs> uh, and the next time you find yourself in Dublin, obviously, it will be my great pleasure to host you at my home club at Royal Dublin. So in the meantime, go easy and happy golfing. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Shane. You're more than welcome. Thank you. Many thanks for joining us today. And thank you to Jasper Miners for his time. As always, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf and on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Until the next time, happy golfing.